today. Via an interview, or interview, wow, overview, interview, via an overview, we are going to begin to take a look at the rather short epistle, because we finished second th- or first thus, the rather short epistle or letter that is titled Titus. Titus. I did this in honor of Thomas's new son. Uh, page 998, you can turn in to, uh, to get there in the Blue Bibles if you're using one of those located underneath the seat around you. If not, you have your own copy of God's Word. Turn now to Titus. This letter contains uh, only three chapters, three chapters, so it shouldn't take us any longer than a year for me to get through it. Uh, <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. I did first thus, that was five chapters. I did that in just under a year, so I don't think it will take us uh, that long. It's a fairly short letter. So, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is the one who is identified as the author of this first century New Testament letter. The title of the letter, as I've already said, is Titus, and it is Titus because it is reflecting the name of the person that this letter was written to. Of Paul's New Testament letters, Titus, Timothy, and Philemon, those three, they all share that specific characteristic. That is, they were personal epistles or written to a specific person. Okay, So unlike his other letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, Corinthians, those were addressed to the church in, or churches in those cities. These, those three letters I just gave you, Titus, Timothy, Philemon, are addressed to specific individuals. However, they were not intended to be private communications or limited only to the persons to whom they were addressed. They were meant to be not only read by the individuals to whom they were addressed, but also made available to the churches at large. So, first, again, we're just going to do an overview today. What do we know about the man to whom this letter was addressed? Titus. Well, in light of what is revealed about him in this letter, and the few, and there are only really a few scripture references that there are outside of this letter, Specifically, you can find references to Titus in 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and 2 Timothy. But from all of that, and from the letter itself, we learn the following. Titus was Greek. He was Greek, so he was a Gentile. And it may be, it is likely, based on what we learn, that he was led to Jesus Christ by the Apostle Paul himself based on the wording of Titus 1.4, which we'll look at in a moment. However, when or where Titus was converted or came to faith in Christ, we do not know. We just don't know a whole lot about this particular individual. In addition to being a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ, as we look to the references or having looked at them myself that are available to us in the New Testament, we learn that Titus had become a trusted and highly valued member of Paul's ministry team, or his missionary team. Paul's confidence in Titus can be seen in the fact that more than once, Paul sent Titus to that troubled church 
the one in Corinth, to deal with some important and difficult matters there. Why? Because he could trust Titus to address those things. He also, as we will see in a moment, was tasked by Paul with a very significant and challenging responsibility on the island of Crete. That is, concerning the churches that existed on the island in the first century. One writer, just gathering all the references together and considering Titus, says this about the man that we can draw from those references. He possessed a, that is Titus, a forceful personality, was resourceful, energetic, tactful, skillful in dealing with difficult situations, and effective in conciliating people. Conciliating people, that is. Conciliating people. So, what was it that Paul wanted Titus, his faithful and competent co-worker in the Lord, to accomplish in Crete? What did he want him to do? Why was he writing to him concerning these things? Well, in order to answer that question, and for the purpose of doing an overview today of the letter before we get into all the nitty-gritty details of it, I'm going to read the letter in its entirety because it's just three chapters, but I will pause at various points to make some comments, okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. So beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, God's Word says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So this section, salutation. We'll look more at it in more detail next Sunday, but the writer and the reader, as is common at the beginning of Paul's letters, are identified here. We see it's Paul is the writer. We see Titus is the primary reader, the the person to whom the letter is addressed. And at the very end of verse 4, a greeting that is common to Paul that he typically gives is given at the end of that verse. Now, in verse 5, Paul gets to the reason, after the salutation, for writing to Titus. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, as I directed you. Crete, okay, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It is located off the southern tip of Greece. The island is fairly large, it's 160 miles long, and its width varies from 7 miles wide to as much as 35 miles wide. It is one of the larger islands 
in the Mediterranean Sea. Anybody been there? Of course you have. Was this recent on your honeymoon? Fantastic. I need to talk to you guys. That would be fun. Okay, you want to come up and talk about the island real quick a little bit? No. Um, Anyway, I don't know now, but at that time, the people living on the island had a bad reputation in the Roman world. They were known for having low moral standards. Low moral standards. Verse 5 says that Paul left Titus in Crete, which means Paul was with Titus in Crete. You with me so far? So for some period of time, he was with him, but now he has left, and he left Titus there. But we really don't know much about that. It is generally assumed, as we try to figure out the chronology of the timing of all of these events and, and what Paul was doing, it is generally assumed that Because there's nothing written in Acts about this visit to Crete as he was on his missionary journeys. We don't read anything specifically about this visit where he is left and Titus is left behind. But if you remember, at the end of Acts, where is Paul? Rome, in prison. Okay, so it is generally assumed that after Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome... He took Titus, his trusted uh, co-worker, he took Titus with him to Crete to minister there. We do know from the scriptures, there is a mention of Crete, um, but not this one, it's a different one. There's a mention of Paul visiting Crete in Acts 27. That was when Paul was being transferred by ship uh, to Rome as a prisoner. And the weather got a little bad, so they had a short stop at a couple of locations on the island of Crete. But, so we know that Paul came into contact, at least we know that, with the island, made some contact with it. He wasn't there that long, and besides, he was a prisoner at the time. So he probably wasn't doing much ministering or preaching of the gospel, but he did come in contact with the island to some degree. So, if our chronology is right, he ends up in prison in Rome, and then some point after he's released from this first imprisonment before being imprisoned again and then finally executed in the second Roman imprisonment, why did Paul go back to the island of Crete? Why did he choose to go there? Was it for the purpose of vacation? Is it pretty there? Is it? Is it? Okay, so it wasn't for that purpose. He wasn't like, man, I can't wait. As soon as I get out of this prison, and really it wasn't, as my brother said, it's, he was just, it's not like we think of prison, but he was confined and he couldn't go anywhere. He was chained to a guard. But as soon as I get this chain off, man, I can't wait to go back and take a long-needed rest on the island of Crete. That wasn't it at all. But I think what it was is... He wanted to go back and work with the Christians that were there or to minister to the fledging churches on the island, the, uh, on, or the Cretan churches, as I'll refer to them, the Cretan churches that were there, and help organize them and strengthen them, and of course, as well, proclaim the gospel to the unsaved inhabitants there on the island. That's the way I would understand it. So my guess is when some way or another 
he knew of these churches that existed. It may have been he came into contact with some folks when they had to stop there during the difficult stormy weather on the way uh, to Rome where he would be uh, in prison there the first time. And he knew the condition, the situation there. He knew there were people of God there. He knew that there were, quote, churches there of some sort, uh, but they were in a very uh, infant-like state, okay? So how did the Christian churches come to exist on the island? Well, we don't know, okay? We don't know because we don't have anything from the Scriptures telling us that, um, One writer says they had evidently been in existence for some time when Paul visited Crete, because as we read through the letter, it appears, it certainly implied that there are already existing fellowships on the island. Um, But as we read through the letter, we'll realize that their condition or the condition of these churches was discouraging and they were inadequately organized. Paul was apparently there for some time with Titus, but obviously the duration that he was there was too short for him to do all that he wanted to see done among these local fellowships on the island. Um, So this is why he gave instructions to Titus and left Titus behind, but he was there long enough to understand the sad condition of the local churches that were there. And therefore gave instructions concerning what needed to be addressed and fixed. Some hypothesize that uh, how did the churches get there? How did Christians actually show up there and form? How did churches form there? Well, some of the Jews, one writer says, in Jerusalem at Pentecost were from Crete. We know that. The Scripture tells us that according to Acts 2.11. They heard the gospel preached in their own tongue. That's recorded for us in Acts 2.11. So it seems safe to assume that at least some of those who heard the gospel preached uh, were converted and carried the gospel that they heard back to Crete, where they lived. Okay, so that's possible. And then churches were formed as the word continued to spread. But... The churches on Crete, as you will see, were immature in the faith and were, as one writer points out, probably small, although the total membership of all the churches individually may have been sizable. So, back to Titus 1.5. So you understand the situation? Paul... And Titus were there for a short period of time. Likely they went there after uh, Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment. Paul is going back to minister there and to give direction and guidance to the churches that were there, check in on them, see what's going on. These, I don't believe, are churches that Paul planted. They were just still in formation, uh, gatherings of God's people, Uh, collectively worshiping as best they understand how and at the time. So he goes back. He can't stay. We don't know why he had to leave. We don't know that either. But apparently his stay wasn't very long. Therefore, Titus, his trusted and solid companion, is left behind. And that brings us to 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order concerning the local churches that are there on the island, 
and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. As I directed you, meaning I've already told you this. Okay, so I I want you to do what I told you to do. Now, why does he need to do that? Titus, does Titus need to be told again what to do? He doesn't, he doesn't. And Titus has already been told that's exactly what Paul wants him to do. So why, why this? Why the letter? One writer points out, this is important, that the letter would serve as a written authorization for this task. Proof to them the Christians on the island of Crete, that Paul was working, or that is, uh, Titus was working in accordance with Paul's own instruction. As the close associate of Paul, Titus must personally have been familiar with, as we'll see, all the exhortations and instructions that are contained in this letter, which set forth Paul's concern for the Cretan churches. In other words... Titus knows what to do. Titus has already been instructed by Paul. Titus is not new to the game. Titus has been with Paul, working with Paul. Titus is trusted. Titus is competent. But here's Titus left behind. He's not an apostle. He doesn't have the name of Paul, the apostle. And now he's going to have to go do some difficulty and difficult and challenging work as he moves from one local community to another on this island saying, I'm here to do this. And who are you? I am a delegate of Paul. I am an apostolic representative. You got any proof for that? I sure do. Check out this letter, okay? So I have a letter from the Apostle Paul explaining exactly what it is I am to do. It's, it's, it's authenticating his ministry among the Cretans and the churches there. That's what's going on. And it would also be a helpful reminder, okay, of all the things, just, you know, just like making sure uh, that Titus didn't miss anything and these are things. But it's, it's not just for Titus. It is as proof that this is exactly, he's doing exactly what the Apostle Paul, who has the authority, who is the direct representative of Jesus Christ, who has the authority, He's doing exactly this. I'm doing this based on what Paul has said to do. So, does that make sense to you? If it doesn't, would you say so? Would you say, no, that doesn't make any sense? Okay, good. Good. Thank you, Senia. One writer says this, The letter not only was a guide for Titus himself, but was a written document that attested his delegated apostolic authority. That's what it is. It's been delegated to Titus. I'm leaving you. You are to act in my stead here. And here's a letter. He sends the letter later on, but I'm going to send the letter so it gives you a stamp of approval from me. When Titus faithfully implemented the admonitions of the letter, he did so with apostolic and therefore divine authority. Apostle Paul, Titus was not an apostle, but Paul was. He had divine authority. His written commission from Paul made clear that any leader or member of the churches who opposed Titus would be opposing Paul and therefore opposing the Lord who commissioned the apostle. So, Titus, like Timothy, served as an official representative of the apostle Paul. They were apostolic representatives. 
So sometimes you hear people talk about Titus and Timothy, they call them the pastoral epistles, and they say, oh, they were pastors, and so it's letters to pastors. Not exactly, not exactly. They, Titus and Timothy were not pastors in the way that I'm a pastor. Uh, they did pastoral things, but it would be better to recognize them as, as I said, apostolic representatives with delegated authority from the Apostle Paul specifically to carry out tasks among the churches on Paul's behalf. Okay? And certainly those letters, Titus and Timothy, have much to say to pastors and to the church because they address matters concerning the church and how it's governed and how it is to function and how it is to operate. And again, due to the circumstances that we'll see here uh, in Crete, not only the, the condition of the church there, kind of a sad situation, the culture, and the false teachers, Paul knew Titus would face opposition, so this letter would be a help to him as he looks to do exactly what Paul has called him to do on this island. Now, Concerning the appointing of elders in every town or place where on the island where a community of believers existed, Paul goes on now to provide the requirements for elders, in, beginning in verse 6. Let's look back. If anyone is above reproach, meaning an elder, a, a candidate for elder, the husband of one wife, listen, we will we'll go through this in detail. That's what we will do in the future. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, that can also be translated or are faithful, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So overseer is another uh, word for the elder, another way to explain this position in the church. Overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay? The other place in the scriptures where we see specific instructions concerning the qualifications for those who would be elders is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Also in 1 Timothy, you'll find the qualifications for for another office called deacon, and that's in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Now, there's so much I want to say, but we will come back to it and say it. Uh, I will just say, because I'll say it again and again, the elder is a man. If you, if you read this and walked away from this thinking, the elder could be a woman, then I don't know what you're reading, because you didn't read just what I read. And I only say that because... There are a number of churches who have female elders or pastors or shepherds. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. 
It's a move away from the scriptures. Now, are these standards here that are laid out, these moral standards, these uh, requirements, these qualifications, are they only for elders? Right? Are they only for elders, guys? No, for sure not. Okay, so, well, I guess I, I can be violent and greedy and I can be a drunkard. I don't have to be hospital or a lover of good because that's only an elder thing. <laughs> no, that's not it. This, this, honestly, as we look through these, these passages, and, you, and I'm going to encourage you, read through Titus. It's, you can do it in 10 minutes. I know it's taking me a long time because I'm stopping, but you can do it in 10 minutes. It's three chapters. I would encourage you, read through it. Several times or in between the weeks as we're going through it, so you become very familiar. But when you get to this section, don't go, well, that's for elders. I don't even, that doesn't even apply to me. Certainly it should apply to you. If this is a standard for those who are going to lead and model Christ in the church and care for God's people, wouldn't it be a good standard for you to strive for? It's really just, honestly, it's Christ-likeness that he's laying out here, really. Okay? So, it's not just for elders, but if one is to be an elder or a faithful protector and good shepherd and worthy leader in God's church, then that man must meet these qualifications. Otherwise, he should not be an elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer. And I thought it would be good to even talk about this now or go to this because at this letter, because at our annual meeting that's coming up at the end of August, we will appoint another elder. So I think it's good timing. Uh, well, you will vote, and if he is affirmed, um, then he'll be an elder. But you also have to vote again on the other non-staff elders, as well as we'll be uh, looking at deacons. So it's just a good time for us to have a discussion and look through what is required of elders, what should they look like for the church. Right now, you know they, the minimum is they're male. Okay? And then you can see all the other qualifications here as they're laid out. So, back to Titus 1.9. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must not deviate from the doctrine that he has been given, right? So that he, and he must hold firm to it. He must understand it. He must know it so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. This is like the primary task of the elder. He's to instruct, to teach the body of Christ, sound doctrine, biblical knowledge, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, Titus was directed to appoint morally and doctrinally qualified men, elders, in the various churches, especially in view of what was going on there, which was the operation of false teachers, which was what Paul will talk about next. So, it was essential. And listen, first century, Crete, false teachers, it's still prevalent today. It's still prevalent. And as I've told you before, it's, it's even worse in some ways, in some ways because of access that false teachers have to the people of God. Or I should say the access that they're granted via television, radio, internet, blogs, 
books, publications, so on and so forth. False teachers, false teaching, or for that matter, secular colleges. False teachers. Then, beginning in verse 10, Paul now refutes the false teachers, right? That the churches needed to be aware of, careful of, and protected from. Listen, the church needs qualified, godly men that are looking out for it. That know the truth, hold to the truth, defend the truth, teach the truth, so the people become indoctrinated with the truth, so that they are not led astray by lies. This is what a church is to do. This is what the leadership of the church is to do. There are also to be moral examples of what it looks like to follow Christ. Not perfect, but they are to be examples of what it looks like to pursue God, to live for Him, to honor Him, to love Him. Why? For the body, so they, have, they can look and see and emulate. And it's an encouragement to the body, and it's instructive to the body as they live out their Christian life in this way. So, all of these qualifications. But now Paul says, you need, to, you need to establish these men. Here's the qualifications for these men. So again, do you think Titus didn't know the qualifications? He knew. But as he, as he now steps into these local congregations and says, all right, I'm here by the sending of the Apostle Paul, or they probably at that point maybe knew. I don't, some of them may have knew. He may have come in contact with them. But as he makes his way around, because Paul had to take off, he's going to be like, I'm here to appoint elders. You're here to do what? Yeah, so let me explain that to you. You have these fellowships, but they should not be without elders, leaders. This is how God wants his church established. He wants it to be governed. He wants it to be cared for. He wants it to be protected by certain men, men with certain qualifications. Okay, what are they? Well, here they are. Are you serious? What do you mean all of that? No, this, this is not, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not setting some ridiculous standard that I've made up in my own head. This is directly from the Apostle Paul, you see? So here it is. And he'd have to work through and vet the men in those congregations and try to figure out who could be qualified and who would desire to fulfill this role in the body. Very important, especially in light of the false teachers that were attacking the church relentlessly, which continues to this day because... Satan is at work to undermine God's work, always, constantly. And he does it through false teachers or false teaching. So, coming to verse 10, i got to hurry. For there are many, as he turns now, so listen, this is why we need these elders. This is why they need to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10, for there are few, many, So Paul was able to ascertain that. There are many. They're on Crete, let alone in the world, but they're on this island who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, Judaizers. We'll get to that later. They must be silenced. Well, that doesn't sound very tolerant because they shouldn't be tolerated. They shouldn't be tolerated. Not in the church. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are professors, not possessors. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Could you get any more serious? I mean, Paul just lays it out, you know? He lays it out. He pulls no punches. He lays it out. He speaks the truth because it needs to be said. So why did Paul call Titus to appoint elders in the churches who would be responsible for teaching and defending the truth? Because elders are to be the first line of defense against false teachers and doctrine. This is why I left you in Crete, he says in verse 5, so that you might, he also says, put what remained into order or set in order the remaining matters and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So what are the other matters that need to be put into order? Well, it's the, it's the instruction that the, the young Christians there, immature Christians there need concerning what it looks like to live a godly life and to follow Christ and to live under the truths of the gospel. So beginning in chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 11, or all the way to the conclusion of the letter, Paul gave various instructions concerning what Christianity should look like, both in our character, personal character, and in our conduct. Not only within the church, among uh, one group to another, groups within the church, but also what it should look like outside of it. Why? Why did he give these instructions? So that the churches might do what they are called to do, which is honor God and be a proper witness that they are to be to the world around them, demonstrating the reality of Christ's saving power. That's what church... Church is not a social club. It's not just a thing you do on Sundays. And if that's how you see it, you see it wrongly. It is to be transforming power in your life, moving you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ that you may declare to this world what it looks like to be saved from sin and come under the lordship of him who is Lord. I can't wait to preach this thing. All right, anyway, it's going to be a, I'm just going to, we're going to have a good time. So, chapter 2, one writer says, chapter 2 focuses on the character and conduct of church members among themselves, and chapter 3 on the character and conduct of both leaders and members before an unbelieving world in which they lived and in which they witnessed. All three of those areas of concern are essential then to the real purpose of the letter, which was to build strong churches that would be effective in evangelism. We have a responsibility, beloved to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be conformed, to put off sin and put on righteousness, the righteousness of him. We have a responsibility. God has called us out of darkness into light that we would manifest that light to a dark world that they might see it and be drawn to it and be saved. Church is everything. It really is. It's treated so lightly sometimes. 
the body of Christ is everything here on earth. It's so important. It's so big. I mean, what could be more important, honestly? So then, I'll read it. Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords, as he addresses this now, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now he addresses different natural groups within the congregations. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects, Titus, to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I want to comment, but I can't. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So one writer points out the Christians, as I already said, were adversely there on the island, adversely influenced by the prevailing low moral standards in Crete. Sound familiar? Southern California. So this will fit right with us. He goes on to say, perhaps the gospel of the grace of God had been misinterpreted. This is why he's having, this is why Paul's having to. You know, he analyzed, he took a look, he got feedback, he saw the condition, the deplorable condition of the, quote, you know, the churches there, the Christians that were there. And so we're trying to figure out what's going on, you know, why are they, why are all these things have to be addressed with them? He says, perhaps the gospel of the grace of God had been misinterpreted to mean that salvation was unrelated to daily conduct. Hmm, there's folks that think that today. Right? You just get saved, then you do whatever, you live how you want, right? And then when it's all said and done, you get to go be with God. That's salvation. That is not salvation. That is not Christian salvation. Titus was urged to insist on the need for sound doctrine and a high level of moral and social conduct by the Christians. But here's, here's the thing I love. Christian behavior, he says, must be grounded in the basic truths of the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does here. As he lays out these commands, what follows in both sections, both chapter 2 and chapter 3, is the motivation for, the instruction for, the foundation for that very godly living, which is the truths of the gospel, of our salvation. It's not just do this, do that. It's do this and do that because of this. Because of your understanding of the gospel, which is why it's so important that we understand the gospel. We know it. We think on it. We understand it in all of its implications and the fullness of it, which we'll look at 
some gems, beautiful gems in this letter, even though it's short, powerful, right? Like you, baby. Short and powerful. All right. I don't know if I'll pay for that later. I don't know if that was a good thing, a bad thing. I'm not sure, but basic. So here it is. After he lays this out, now he lays on us the basic truths of the gospel. Why are you to live like that? Because of this, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does it do? Training us, motivating us, instructing us to do what? To renounce ungodliness. If you aren't renouncing ungodliness, then you don't understand the cross. You don't understand the Savior. You're missing something. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. Here's the positive side self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, as we look to the age to come, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, this is the gem here, this is, ooh, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. This is why he gave himself. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things and don't apologize for them. Make them known. Scream them from the rooftops. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, Titus. Let no one disregard you. Because certainly that could happen, right? He's concerned about it, especially with the opposition that exists there the low moral standards of the culture. Those who claimed Christ were no longer to live an ungodly, lawless life, but they were to deny their own sinful practices, old sinful practices, and live for Jesus Christ because he gave himself for that reason. And that's true for you and I as well. Paul addresses the... Then he goes on to address the church's conduct in relation to the world in which they live. Titus chapter 3. Remind them. So this was your relationships among those within groups within the church, your interactions and calling you to this type of conduct. Now concerning those outside, remind them, the Christians there in Crete, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. This is honestly, this is, I've said this before, the, you're getting so much because I'm just reading a letter and it's the word of God. It's probably better than, it's better than anything I could do. And anything I can do is only good if it accurately communicates to you the truth of God's word. But this Speak evil to no, I mean, if, just take verse two. Speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That is so anti-culture. But that is what we've been called to. You think we'd stand out if we lived like that? But what ends up happening? We end up living like the world. We speak evil of people. We, we get into fights. 
we're not gentle, courteous. You know what I'm saying? This is what we've been called to. Boy, we need the grace of God, don't we? We need his power, we need the spirit, but this is what we've been called to. Again, again, Paul provides the motives for such godly conduct. Here it is, 4, verse 3. Listen, so I want you to be courteous towards all, for we ourselves were once foolish. I love this. Do you remember? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So chill a little bit. You, you know, you look at the world, you go, now that you become a Christian, you're like, I'm enlightened. And oh, look at those pathetic people out there, those worthless people. I can't believe them, the ungodly, yucky, yucky, right? But he says, wait a minute. Show, I want you, don't, don't speak evil of them. Don't quarrel with them. Show courtesy to them. Come under those who you should come under. Be a good witness. Who do you think you are anyway? Don't you remember? You were just like them. Until, but when the goodness, here it is, but, but, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Glory be to him. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, another gem here, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But listen, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law which were going on for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division in the body, wanting to come in and cause problems, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You think that's harsh? I don't. I think that's love. It's a protection of the flock. Well, I'm just going to end with the, the conclusion and not say anything else because it's way over. But, and so I'll just read the last three verses and I'm just going to go in and pray because I want to finish the letter. And um, I want you to come back next week. I want you, I'm encouraging you, I would plead with you, read through the three chapters. Just read, read it in its entirety. And even maybe before you read it, pray, God, let this word have its way with me. You know? And then... Pray that I can come back next Sunday as we dive in deeper to the, the riches that are contained in, in this book. But he closes out with this. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. 
Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is glorious and beautiful. Such a gift. And Father, help us as we now enter into this journey, as we make our way section by section, verse by verse, through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to his faithful, competent co-worker in the faith, Titus, as he looked to strengthen and give instruction to the, the young and immature churches that were there on that island. And why, Father, that they might be built up, that they might be strong, that they might, they might live for you, honor you, glorify you, and be the witness that they should be to that messed up culture that was around them, that they might proclaim Christ not only in word, but also in deed, that they might proclaim what salvation is. It saves us from sin. It transforms us. It makes us a new people, a people that are waiting and longing for their King and their Lord to come and take them unto himself. Father, help us. Convict us encourage us, strengthen us by your holy word. We're so grateful for you and for this gift that we call the Bible. We ask your blessing on our congregation in Christ's name. Amen.